Luke chapter 11, verses 7 through 15. And as they departed, Jesus began to say unto the multitudes concerning John, that's John the Baptist, what went ye out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind? But what went ye out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what went ye out for to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist, notwithstanding he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if ye will receive it, this is Elijah, which was for to come. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Father, our desire this morning is that you would give us ears to hear, not just in this hour, but especially when we worship and hear your word from Romans. God, we pray that you would help us to understand your word, to receive it, to enjoy it, to treasure it, especially as we reflect on the New Testament, the new covenant that you've given to us, and the revelation that you've given to us along with it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, we are going to uh, head into new territory. For the last three weeks, we have been doing a very high-level review of things that we had covered in the spring of 2020. And today, we're covering new material, so I'm very excited about this. Uh, if you're interested in class recordings, you can sign up for them at the Welcome Center. There are handouts uh, as you walk in that just have notes. Here are some very detailed notes uh, that I've provided for you this week that I hope are helpful for you. Um, so, so far in this class, as we've done review, we've considered where we've gotten the Bible theologically and just from the story of the Bible and so far from the Old Testament, and we've thought about the Apocrypha. We've considered that the origin of Scripture is divine. That means that the Word of God is inspired, it's breathed out by God. As such, it's, it is authoritative over our lives. It is truthful in all that it addresses. We use the word inerrant to describe that. And it's trustworthy. It's reliable for us, and we use the word infallible to describe that. Uh, so we talked about all these things, and we talked about how the Bible was written from the Old Testament, beginning with Moses, and then all the way up through the prophets. And then last week we talked about those 400 years of, of silence, or a time when we don't have inspired scripture, but we do have uh, documents that we call the Apocrypha that have often been revered, but have been disputed as scripture, and we don't accept those documents as authoritative. We talked about all that last week. Well, this morning we turn our attention to the New Testament and how the New Testament was written. And uh, so that's what we'll talk about during our time this morning. So, how was the New Testament written? And part of what I mean by this question is, is how do we theologically, like how do, how do we have uh, inspired authoritative scripture being kind of relaunched after 400 years of silence? Uh, how, does, how does God start to inspire scripture again? And at the level of the Bible story, there's several ways to answer this question. There's several themes that persist from the Old Testament to the New Testament that help us understand how the New Testament came to be. So one of those things is we have a re-emergence of the prophets. You remember last week when we talked about the apocryphal books. The apocryphal books, if you read them, they understand there are no prophets anymore. 
Uh, there are several times in First and Second Maccabees where they, there's a self-awareness, the prophets have ceased. Well, with the New Testament, the prophets get restarted, so to speak. And of course, you have John the Baptist, who's one of the, the primary prophets here, right? John the Baptist, he prepares the way of the Lord, proclaiming that the Messiah was coming and that he would bring the Holy Spirit. And we see a lot about John in John 1 and in Matthew 3. And when he's preaching, you know, his message catches the people's attention, stirring the people to repentance and renewal and bringing a sense of expectation that God is speaking and acting in a new way. And then his prophecy comes true as John identifies Jesus as the superior Messiah, the one who is to come. And, and, that this, and then the Spirit comes on Jesus in a unique way when Jesus is baptized and as we read, Jesus affirms, we just read this in Matthew 11, Jesus affirms that John is the Elijah predicted in Malachi 4, right, the end of the Old Testament. And, and when Jesus does this, right, he's connecting for people the Old and New Testaments. He's connecting what God was doing and what he prophesied about and what's happening now in, the, in, the, in Jesus' own time. And then, of course, Jesus himself is the great prophet, uh, in Deuteronomy 18:15, Moses said, The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me. Unto him ye shall hearken. When Jesus is baptized, the voice from heaven says, This is my beloved with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And the same thing happens at the transfiguration. Jesus and others explicitly understood him to be a prophet. So you just think about John 4, right? John 4, Jesus talks to the, the, Samarit the, the Samaritan woman at the well. And she says in John 4, 19, Sir, I perceive thou art a prophet. And he is a prophet. Later on in that chapter, Jesus says of himself that a prophet has no honor in his own country. And he's talking about himself. So Jesus talks about himself as a prophet. And then, of course, Jesus came to speak forth the words of God. Jesus said in John 12 that everything he's saying, the Father has given him to say. And, of course, that's the very function of a prophet is to tell forth God's words. So, John and Jesus relaunched the prophetic ministry, which, of course, Jesus is the great prophet that Moses spoke of. So we have the relaunching of the prophets, and then we also have God's message, his new authoritative message, being validated by great miraculous signs and wonders. Right? So with the dawning of the new covenant, we have a spike in miraculous activity. Angels are coming. Angels come to Zechariah, Mary, Joseph, the shepherds, revealing what's going on, revealing God's redemptive events. Predictions are made about John and Jesus that then come to pass. And we know from Deuteronomy 18, again, that fulfilled uh, great acts are part of what validates God's authoritative messengers. And then, of course, Jesus' ministry is filled with miraculous works that validate his authority that validate his message. Jesus' ministry is irreducibly, it's a preaching ministry. Jesus said over and over again, I came to preach, and he preached. And the signs that Jesus performed validated his message. And so in John 5, 36, for instance, Jesus says, but I have greater witness than that of John for the works which the Father hath given me to finish the same works that I do bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. So Jesus is saying, these great works that I do, they validate that I am sent of the Father. 
And the, the whole first half of John's gospel is sometimes called the book of signs. It, it lists time after time of Jesus' great uh, and powerful miracles that authenticate his message. And then in John 7, 31, the people, they're seeing all that Jesus is doing, and they say, it says, many of the people believed on him and said, when Christ, which is Messiah, when the Messiah comes, will he do more miracles than these which this man hath done? Right? So the people are seeing what Jesus is doing, and they realize that all these mighty works, they authenticate this man. This is the Messiah because his, his message is validated by his works. Right? And so, of course, the apostles continue this pattern in Acts. Uh, the apostles do more even than Jesus did uh, in their signs and wonders. And their, their message is authenticated, it's verified by their signs and wonders. So we have, uh, we have a reemergence of the prophets, we have their message being validated by a spike in miraculous action to authenticate their message. And then we also have a continuing covenant action and covenant communication. Remember, last week we talked about how scripture, and we see this in the Old Testament and it's true in the New, that that God's covenantal action is the backbone of revelation. And so the incarnation, life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus constitute the high point of God's covenant action with his people of all time, right? And the cross in particular is central to the new covenant. We're going to celebrate this this morning, right? Luke 22, verses 19 and 20, Jesus explains, This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Likewise, also the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the, what? It's, it's the new covenant. And in the King James, it says the New Testament. Remember, testament and covenants, the same word. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. So Jesus' ministry as a whole, and particularly his sacrifice on the cross, when he offered his life as a sacrifice and shed his blood, was the definitive redemptive action of the new covenant or the New Testament. And so then the, the New Testament documents, the writings that we have, represent an explanation and a proclamation of that covenant. So Jesus predicted these documents, these New Covenant writings, in John 14, 26, when he says that the Comforter, that's the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. He goes on in John 16 saying, I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. Howbeit, when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he shall show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. In other words, when the spirit comes and teaches the apostles all truth, all of those things are going to be about Jesus, about who he is, and what he has done. And so, so the, the New Covenant documents, the New Testament documents, are written to proclaim and explain what Christ has done. So there's three clear patterns that we've seen that characterize the Old Testament, and then that carry over into the New, the role of the prophets, their message being validated by signs and wonders, and then this, this covenantal action being explained by covenantal communication. In other words, the, the writings that make up the Bible. So one last thing to say about how the Bible gets written, just kind of theologically, is that the New Testament fulfills the Old Testament. The New Testament fulfills the Old Testament. 
And this is, this is fairly obvious, right? There is an inherent unity between the Old and New Testaments. They relate, they relate to one another in terms of promise in the Old and fulfillment in the New. Now, that doesn't mean that everything that the Old Testament talked about is fulfilled in the New Testament yet. There are still things to come. But it does mean that the fundamental promises and expectation of salvation and restoration are fulfilled in Jesus. And Jesus says this clearly. Jesus says in John 5, 39, Search the scriptures, for in them ye think that ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. So he says, if you search the Old Testament, it's talking about me. That's what Jesus says. A few verses later, Jesus says, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuseth you, even Moses, in whom ye trust. For had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if ye believe not his writings, how shall ye believe my words? So Jesus understood that what was written, even all the way back to Moses, was written to, to, to lead people up to Christ, right? And we, we even are learning in Romans, and you can see this in Galatians, about how the Old Testament leads us up to Christ. So um, th with this new understanding, the apostles, they continually, in the New Testament writings, the apostles over 300 times connect the Old Testament, what the Old Testament's talking about, to what Jesus has accomplished in his life work and work. <clears throat> So we see a continuity in the unfolding of Scripture and a fundamental unity of message from the Old Testament to the New Testament. So here I'll pause in case you have any questions, um, and then we'll continue. Any questions or thoughts? All right, we'll keep going. So who wrote the New Testament? The New Testament was written by the apostolic community, and I'll see if my slide will move forward here. There we go. The New Testament was written by the apostolic community, so the apostles and those connected to them. The apostles were those who were witnesses to Christ and authorized by him to be his public witnesses. So you, you realize there were more people that witne were witnesses to Christ or that were his disciples than were apostles. Right? So there's a bigger group of witnesses to Christ, but the apostles are those who were witnesses to Christ and were authorized by him. So back in Luke 24, Jesus continued, or he talked about in verse 46, he said unto his apostles, his disciples, thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things. The disciples understood themselves as commissioned by Christ in Acts 1 to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth, right? And so you remember when they had to replace Judas, they didn't just choose just anybody, right? They knew in Acts 1 it had to be somebody who was a witness to Christ. And then we have Paul, right, who's a, a little bit of a different character, but Paul was uniquely called by Christ and a witness of the risen Christ. Remember, Christ, of course, appeared to him, and he was uniquely authorized by the risen Christ to be uh, an authorized messenger of that good news of the new covenant. And just as a point of application, right, because the apostles are uniquely authorized by Jesus, they speak for him. Their words 
are his words. So you might as well put them in red letters, right? This is a little bit, and I have Bibles with red letters. This Bible has red letters. So it's not a bad thing. But it can give us the impression that maybe Jesus' words are more important than the other words. But Jesus authorized his apostles. Their words, what they're writing, are, is what he wants written. And, and sometimes people maybe want to focus on one author or, or one set of words, maybe Jesus' words, over the apostles, or create some tension between the two. There is no tension. Jesus authorized his apostles. So what Paul wrote, what James wrote, is what Jesus wants written. The Spirit of Christ is the one that inspired them to write. And so just again, as a point of application, we don't have to rank and out-prioritize like the Gospels over the Apostles or Paul or James. This is all what our risen Christ wanted to have written. And so you can see in the, um, in the uh, slide above there, and it's also in your notes, the authors and the writings. And I, the, one of the points of showing you this, you know, of course, you, it's probably fairly evident and obvious who wrote what. But I, I'm just wanting to show you there that either that the authors are apostles or they're connected to the apostles, very closely connected, right? So even with, um, so some obviously like Paul or Peter are obviously apostles, but then you have a couple of half-brothers of Jesus writing. You have James and Jude, and then you have Mark writing, who's a companion, especially of Peter. Um, church history seems to give us an indication that Mark is writing in communication with Peter and that Peter's um, maybe giving Mark the information to write down. We don't know exactly who wrote Hebrews. Again, some church tradition would indicate that it, it may be Paul, but we don't know for sure who wrote that. But the, the New Testament documents are either being written directly by apostles or by people who worked with the apostles or who were connected to the apostles or Jesus in unique ways. Uh, I'll talk about when the New Testament was written, and then I'll pause again. The New Testament was written over a span of about 50 years, from about the mid-40s to the mid-90s. So Jesus' ministry uh, was in the early 30s AD, and we believe that James was written in about the 40s. And so we have a gap of about a decade, maybe 10 or 15 years, before Scripture started to be written. And in that gap, um, there were oral teachings. You know, people were still talking about Jesus. It's not like Christians were silent between the time Jesus ascended and the time the New Testament was written. So people were talking and teaching about Jesus, and there may have been things written down that we don't have, uh, but people didn't stop talking about them, about Jesus. But we know, of course, that Jesus said and did more than we have written in the New Testament. That's not a problem for us. John 20, verse 30 says, many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book many of which are not written in any book, right? John 21, 25 is one of the most thrilling verses in Scripture to me. It says, there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. So Jesus did lots of things, and he said lots of things that we don't have in the New Testament. But what we have is what God wanted us to have, and praise God for that. You know, one fascinating indication that we have of the existence of this ongoing speaking and writing about Jesus is in Acts chapter 20, verse 35. Maybe you've heard this before. You certainly heard the, the phrase. Um, in Acts 20, 35, Paul says, Remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. 
And where did Jesus say that? We don't know. We don't know. It's not in the Gospels. You will search the New Testament in vain to see where, as Paul says, remember the words of the Lord Jesus. We don't have those words in any Gospel. But we know Jesus said them because Paul tells people to remember. That also means other people knew about this, right? Paul could tell other people to remember what Jesus said. So this saying of Jesus was known in such a way that people could remember it. Um, so this is just one interesting example we have, that there were other sayings and teachings of Jesus that people knew about, that Paul could even remind people of, that aren't in our New Testament documents. And we have this little one uh, that is preserved for us because the Lord wanted us to know it is more blessed to give than to receive. Chronologically, even though the events of the gospel happened first, the gospels weren't likely written first, right? So just because they come first in our New Testament, uh, it's helpful because it's chronological, but they probably weren't written first. It's kind of like the Chronicles of Narnia. What order do you put them in? My wife has a great opinion about that, I'm sure, because she loves Narnia. Uh, we're fairly confident that James was written first in the 40s, as I mentioned, and that some of Paul's writings came early in the 50s, all that prior to the Gospels. Then we believe the Gospels, starting with Mark, in the mid-50s were written with Luke and Matthew coming next, and then John being written later. And just as a quick side note, the way we date some of these books is by internal evidence. Sometimes we can look at the, the line of events. Acts is helpful here, like who was where, when. Um, and sometimes we also can use church history writings that tell us who wrote things in what order um, to try to date them. I'll pause here, and I'm going to flip a slide. And if you have any questions, now would be a good time. Any thoughts or questions? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 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 Chuck's mentioning that even in the Old Testament, you have references in the, the histories, especially, for instance, of uh, other books being referenced. It'll say, are these things not written down in, you know, the, the book of whatever? Uh, and even all the way back to Moses, I, didn't, I don't think I mentioned this, but even Moses does that. Moses references a book of the wars of the Lord. What's that? What's the book of the wars of the Lord? That would be cool to have. We don't have it. Uh, but Moses knew about it, and it was another written thing. We also, it's very likely that Paul wrote other letters to the Corinthians. When you read First and Second Corinthians, he references other letters that we don't have. Uh, it's not a problem. Um, those documents, this is my opinion, those documents wouldn't be inspired. It's the writings themselves that are inspired. It's not the author. So it's not like everything Paul said was inspired. Uh, the books that are inspired are the books we have. Um, and I'm sure it would be great to find, like, Corinthians 1.5, um, if that was ever discovered. It'd be fascinating. Any other thoughts or questions? Yeah, I think it would be interesting and revered, but not inspired would be my opinion. Yeah. Any other thoughts or questions? All right, let's keep going. Where was the New Testament written? Well, the New Testament was written from a variety of places to a variety of places. Uh, <clears throat> and this presents a unique challenge that we don't necessarily have in the Old Testament, although you do have some of this. Um, remember that much of the Old Testament was collected and stored in the tabernacle and then in the temple. So you kind of have this central place, the kind of a central authority 
uh, that's in the Old Testament that's collecting these books and preserving them. I mean, you don't have that in the New Testament. So just look at the variety of places on this map. You know, so Matthew is writing largely to a Jewish audience, likely in the east. Um, so a lot of people think he's writing to Antioch, which is in the upper right corner there. Titus is written to two new churches on the island of Crete. And Crete is, I don't know if you guys can see this very well, but Crete is an island in the middle of the Mediterranean there. Galatians, Philippians, Thessalonians, Corinthians, the churches in Revelation, they're all on the north side of that map, so north of the Mediterranean, south of the Black Sea. Um, so they're all written to the north. And of course, Romans that we're studying now is written all the way in the west. It's on the west corner of that map in Italy. Others, like 1 Peter, are written to dispersed peoples all over the place. So there's no, there's no central location or central authority that's collecting these things, but churches were reading them, treasuring them, studying them, passing them around. So, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 27, it says, I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. And then in Colossians 4, 15 and 16, it says, Salute the brethren which are in Laodicea. He's writing to Colossae. Salute the brethren in Laodicea and Nymphus and the church which is in his house. And when this epistle is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that ye likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. So they're, they're passing letters around, they're reading them publicly. Um, one scholar, Milton Fisher, says, because of the ge geographic isolation of the various recipients of portions of the New Testament, there was bound to be some lag and uncertainty from one region to another in the acknowledgement of some of the books. So that's kind of a pivot quote, right? Because because the New Testament was written from a lot of places to a lot of different places, pretty much all over that map, the way it was received, it would take people a while to realize Romans got written all the way over there. Or that the Gospel of Matthew got written all the way to the other side of the map. And then there's all these other letters that are being passed around. Um, so it was written to a variety of places, and that will affect how how it was received and ultimately recognized which books were authoritative, which we'll talk about now. So, so how was the New Testament received? So these are questions related to canon, right? How the New Testament canon or set of books uh, takes place, which books were included and which books were excluded. And even in our lifetimes, right, some very interesting conversations have come up around this. Maybe you've heard of Richard Dawkins. He's a pretty popular level atheist who doesn't like Christianity or the Bible, he says the four Gospels that made it into the official canon were chosen more or less arbitrarily out of a larger sample of at least a dozen. So that's what Richard Dawkins thinks. Dan Brown, uh, who wrote the Da Vinci Code and related documents, you probably, some of you will remember that, um, his fictional scholar uh, in the Da Vinci Code says the modern Bible was compiled and edited by men who possessed a political agenda to solidify their own power base. So how do we think about that? that these are some recent charges that your New Testament is arbitrary. There are lots of other documents about Jesus that just didn't make it. And the ones that did make it are there only because it was a way for the people in power to preserve their power. So what do you say to that? Well, this morning, I just want to respond by walking through a few hundred years of church history to see how the New Testament documents were received. I gave you some abbreviated but detailed notes in that handout. Um, and some of this will probably feel like drinking out of a fire hose. So let's drink. Um, so from the 1 to 100s, um, 
This is during the time, of course, when the New Testament's being written. And when the New Testament is being written, there's a self-awareness among the apostolic writers that they are composing authoritative scripture. They know what's going on. They know what they're writing. 1 Corinthians 14.37 says, If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. So Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, realizes the authority with which he is speaking. There's a corresponding awareness among the recipients that what they're receiving is the word of God. So in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, it says, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because... When ye received the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. In 2 Peter 3, Peter talks about Paul's writings, some of which are hard to understand, and he says that people twist those writings for their own purposes like they do the other scriptures. So Peter realizes that what Paul is writing is scripture just like all the other scriptures. And I mentioned this before. Scripture, that word, is used some 50 times in the New Testament, and it always refers to authoritative inspired writings. It's not just a word for writing in general. And uh, so those are some examples. In 1 Timothy 5.18, Paul says, For the scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. That quotes the the Old Testament and the New. Paul, and Paul calls them both scripture. So there's a self-awareness that what they're writing is inspired. And then jumping outside of the New Testament at the very end of the first century in 95 AD, Clement of Rome, who's a pastor there, he wrote a letter to the Corinthians showing a familiarity with Matthew, Luke, Hebrews, Romans, Corinthians, and several other New Testament letters. So there's even an awareness in one other early writing that, there were, that they had an awareness of the scripture that were being written. In the 100s, uh, you have lots of people. Uh, Clement, Polycarp, Ignatius, Barnabas, not the New Testament Barnabas that you know of. They were all quoting the New Testament documents as authoritative and presuming that their audience also received those documents as authoritative. And in their writings, only Mark, 2nd and 3rd John, Jude, and 2nd Peter are not clearly referenced. And when they're referencing the New Testament writings, they're using that formula, it is written, or as the scripture says. And they're talking about the New Testament that way. Toward the end of this period, Justin Martyr affirms that the writings of the apostles are of the same nature and quality as the Old Testament writings. In the 170s, Tatian put together a book called the Diatessaron through four. You Marvel fans might recognize um, the word tesseron in there, uh, connect it with the tesseract, which is that powerful cube thingy. Anyway, the Diatessaron was a harmony of the four gospels showing that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were recognized as the authoritative accounts of Jesus. And that's in the 170s. And in this period, we have developing challenges that that make the issue of biblical authority more pressing. One challenge came in the region of Syria that was being overseen by a pastor named Serapion. And a church in that area got a hold of a book called The Gospel of Peter. And you will know, you know, we we don't accept that as authoritative. But some accepted this book as from Peter himself, while others doubted its authenticity. And a fight broke out in the church, metaphorically. I don't think they were literally hitting each other. But the church was divided over this, over this book, the Gospel of Peter. And at first, Serapion handled it by saying, if this is the only thing that seems to produce meanness of soul among you, let it be read. So Serapion said this. He's trying to create peace in the church. 
without having read the book. At this point, Serapion did not, had not read it. But later, Serapion was warned about the book, and then he got a hold of it and he read it. And after reading it, he had serious concerns. Some things in it were a bit strange. You know, it, this gospel, it talked about Jesus being taller than the sky when he erupted out of the tomb. And it talked about the cross, the literal cross, talking. But it also said that Jesus was silent on the cross, quiet, quote, quiet as one having no pain, close quote. And this idea supported Gnostic heresies, um, which the New Testament was very aware of and the early church was aware of, that Jesus was not fully human, but just appeared to be human. So Serapion reversed his earlier recommendation and said, we accept the writings of Peter and the other apostles just as we would accept Christ, but as for those with a name falsely ascribed, we deliberately dismiss them, knowing that no such things have been handed down to us. So he rejected the gospel of Peter and told the church to reject it. And this example shows that early Christians in the 100s cared about who wrote their books. Timothy Paul Jones, who's a, a scholar and professor, he writes, early Christians cared deeply about whether their texts were written by the people whose names were ascribed to them. If the authenticity of a text was in question, early Christians appraised the truthfulness of the text by comparing the content with the Savior's right words in the writings handed down to us, most likely reference to the undisputed apostolic writings, such as the four Gospels and Paul's letters to the churches. Another, so that's a, a challenge related to the Gospel of Peter and how uh, one pastor, Serapion, handled it. Another challenge comes from a man named Marcion, and I'll just shorthand for you. Marcion rejected the Old Testament, and he only accepted parts of the New Testament, right? So he, like, edited Luke, and he said, there's parts of Luke I don't like. There's parts of Luke I do like. So there's not only pressure to add books to the New Testament writings, but also to delete books from the authoritative writings. And Marcion was rejected for lots of reasons as a heretic. Um, so you have pressure coming from both directions. Around 180, AD, you have something that's important we don't have time to talk about called the Muratorian Canon that listed 22 of the 27 books we have of the New Testament. So the point I'm trying to make as we go along is that very early on, Christians were working on saying, these books are authoritative, these books we reject. They're doing this work as they learn about these books from different places, and they're, they're, they're using principles to discriminate between these writings. In the 200s, just a couple things here. Origen, uh, he's writing commentaries and sermons on most of the New Testament books that we have. Dionysius of Alexandria, that's in Egypt. He points out, you know, that Revelation was accepted in the West before the East, and that Hebrews was accepted in the East before the West. And that just helps us again remember, as we look at that map, that the writings are going all over the place, right? And so it takes people in different geographic regions a while to communicate, to realize what's been written, to sort through things. They don't have email. They don't have Zoom. You know, they, they, they don't have roads even, or roads with cars. So it just takes a while for some of this communication and development to happen. In the 300s, we've got plenty of things happening. As we get into this century, I want to return for a moment to the sentiment expressed by Dan Brown, namely that the church selected the books of the New Testament to solidify their power base. In 303 AD, there was an emperor named Diocletian of the, in the Roman Empire, and he hated Christians, and he had churches burned. Bibles burned. Christians burned. And these acts by Diocletian are called the 10th persecution. So he's not the first Roman emperor to persecute Christians. It, persecution was a regular part of the early church for the first 300 years of Christianity. Emperor after emperor is torturing, killing Christians. This time has been dubbed the era of martyrs. In other words, Christians didn't have a power base to support and prop up. 
for 300 years. They're being killed. Their books are being burned. Uh, so so the, the idea that Christians are trying to just protect their power base doesn't really hold up when you realize that Christians don't have a power base for 300 years. It wasn't until the Edict of Milan in 313 that Constantine legalized Christianity and gave Christians some breathing room to communicate, to talk, to write. So, uh, so it's a hard sell. Dan Brown's critique is a, is a hard sell. Um, Eusebius, uh, in the early 300s, he wrote the Ecclesiastical History, and he laid out the situation plainly. He said there's universal agreement about the four Gospels, Acts, the letters of Paul, Hebrews, 1 Peter, 1 John, Revelation. He said the majority of people accept James, 2 Peter, 2 3 John, and Jude. And then he said there's some, some doubtful books, like the Acts of Paul, the Didache, and the Shepherd of Hermas. Athanasius, the Council of Carthage, they're all clarifying. You know, when you get to Athanasius in 367, he writes an Easter letter, and he lists all 27 books of the New Testament without qualification, saying these are the books, the books we have in 367. And then in 397, the Council of Carthage also lists the 27 books of our New Testament without qualification, saying these are the New Testament authoritative books. So the point here is that over time, we see a widening and deepening consensus about the New Testament documents and about the authoritative books. Milton Fisher, again, he summarizes it nicely, saying the spreading of the knowledge of the sacred literature and the deepening consensus to its authority as inspired scripture continued uninterruptedly. So as you go through these first 300 years, we see the Christians, as they communicate, as the books get spread around, there's a deepening and widening consensus that these are the books. Okay, so I'm going to pause here because I've been taking us through 300 years of church history very fast. Any questions, thoughts, comments about anything that we've been talking about? I'm glad you think it's cool, Bam. Yeah, Bob. Yeah, that's a great question. So sometimes, uh, you know, they've only got parts of it, right, uh, for those early years. And sometimes we have, um, we have some, they call it codexes or like some early book forms that will have like the four Gospels, for instance. So some churches might have had the four Gospels. Some of them might have had a collection of Paul's writings. Um, some might have had Peter's writings. But over time, and as you go further into church history, m more of those things get bound together and recognized. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they would have had, the Old Testament documents would have been more common. And again, in this time period, they would have been using something called the Septuagint. Uh, in the Roman Empire, Greek was the common language um, and later on, we'll talk about this next week, probably you got Latin becomes the common language and then you have the Vulgate. But yeah, they would have had the, a lot of the Old Testament, yeah. But again, it's not like every person had them, right? A church would have had them probably, or a pastor. Yeah? Yes, Scott.
Yeah, I think um, the two short ways that I think we can talk about that are one is that there's a whole separate um, kind of topic that's worth talking and thinking about that especially becomes prominent in the Reformation, but it exists, I would argue, before that of sola scriptura, that scripture alone is our final authority. And it's because scripture alone has a unique nature, right? Scripture is God-breathed. And what is written in scripture are God's words, and none of the rest of us can do that. Um, There's other questions about, yeah, some people believe in modern-day apostles or prophecy in a different way, and there's a whole other set of discussion around that that's related to sola scriptura. When it comes to the Roman Catholic Church especially, right, I think one of the things we see in church history that's helpful is, again, that for the first 300 years, there is not a centralized power structure, right? There is no pope. There becomes a pope later. But when the New Testament documents are being received, it's not these authorities that are saying, you know, definitively that, like, we're the ones who are choosing what the Bible is. Uh, Again, the way that scripture is received is it is recognized for what it is in its own nature, and that it's connected to Jesus and his authorized messengers. So you have people in different places, not a centralized power or authority, that are realizing this and living based on it. Yeah. Yeah, Chuck. Yeah, so, you know, after Christianity becomes legalized, and I don't pretend to be an expert or prepared to address all of this this morning, but yeah, after Christianity becomes legalized, you do have groups of pastors or bishops being called together to clarify, yeah, some different teachings that you have in the church, especially about the person of Christ, and then about the Spirit, uh, the Trinity, you have the Council of Nicaea, Chalcedon, Um, And then Carthage is later mostly about scripture, right? You have these councils being called together, and not everybody there is unanimous, right? There's disagreements. Um, And, uh, yeah, so you do have, like, as church history progresses, and especially as the bishops and the um, church in Rome especially gains prominence, and the bishop of Rome becomes the pope, um, then you do have, like, a shift into more of a hierarchical, centralized power structure and authority. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. So when the when the when those councils are being called together um, in the three hundreds, they're already going to be looking back at a couple hundred years of writing and conversation that's already been taking place about what's in the New Testament and what's not. They're not just making it up on the fly to solidify their own power. Yeah, and Christians have been doing this for hundreds of years without power while they're being persecuted. Yeah. For the sake of time, I'm going to stop here. Um, there's some interesting things to say about the New Testament Apocrypha. The summary is that we'd evaluate it similar to the Old Testament Apocrypha. They're interesting. Um, you can read them. Um, they're not authoritative. Some of the teachings in them are not helpful. Uh, there's pseudepigraphal writings that are just false, fakely written, uh, using um, false names, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Judas. And some of the things that are written in those Gospels are just outlandish. Um, So if you ever want to read them, Christians don't have to be afraid of them. It's not hard to look at the Gospel of Thomas and say, that's out in left field. Um, So you don't need to be afraid of those things. And if you have more questions, we can talk about it. I'll pray, and then we'll be dismissed. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the confidence we have that we, we know your thoughts to us. We know what you want us to know. 
that's been revealed in your word. I pray, Father, that you'd help us to understand your word better. Now, as we worship, that we would worship you in truth and in spirit and in Christ's name. I pray you'd help Pastor John as he preaches and help us as we hear. In Jesus' name, amen.